Well, good morning. Thank you very much for having me. It is always a, much of a pleasure to be with you. I'm going to read the scripture passage that's printed in your worship guide with actual one little addendum, which is uh, I had a typo in my email. I meant to end the passage at verse 30. So if you have a Bible and would like to follow along all the way, which actually will be helpful for other reasons, um, I'm going to begin reading in Matthew 11, verse 25, and I'm going to conclude in verse 30. So would you listen now with open ears as I read these words from the book that we love? At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father God, I come to, we come to you now when we sit under these words. And Lord, I recognize that as we have come in this uh, building, as we have sung our songs and confessed our sins and offered our possessions to you, Lord, I recognize that we come from all kinds of different places. Some of us come in here and we are in a season of joy and blessing and uh, abundance. Others of us come in here and we are run down completely. We are running on empty uh, and in desperate need of refreshment. Lord, I recognize further that some of us come in here with healthy bodies. Others of us come in here with bodies that are experiencing profound malfunction. Some of us are suffering and sick. Some of us perhaps are even dying. Lord, I recognize further that some of us come in here uh, full of faith and hope and trust in you, regardless of where we are in this moment, whether we are in a season of goodness or difficulty. And others of us perhaps are here not quite sure what to think about you, not quite sure if you're real, and if you are, if you're good, not quite sure if the words that have just been read will have any impact, any meaningful impact on our lives and on things that keep us up at night. Pray that you give us grace today and now in this moment, give grace to me. Pray that you would give us the Holy Spirit, uh, as indicated by this passage, to truly know the Father and the Son. Would you do something supernatural through these words and through the sacrament to follow? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning and great to be with you again. Uh, as Robbie said, my name is Darren. He did leave off a very important uh, part of my history. You know, no, no, won't hold it against him, which is that uh, I, do, I do chair the Ironworks Westchester fan club. So I, I love y'all and I love what God is doing here and I love being here. And that leads into the question of, you know, I've kind of taken it my practice to not really surprise you with my preaching. So I just try to be really upfront about what I'm trying to accomplish so you know and you can kind of like, if you're on the edge of your seat worrying, like, is Darren going to piss us off today or not? You know, I don't think so. Um, what am I after? What do I want to do? And I'll just tell you very plainly, my goal in being here is that uh, you would experience a deeper rest in Christ than you presently have. Right? Why, do I, why did I pick that? Well, 
two reasons. Number one, it's what I personally need in this moment. And so I figured, hey, if Robbie's going to have me come and preach, I might as well serve myself. You know, that seemed to make sense. Number two, I care about you, and I know some of you, and I know that this is, at least for some of you, a word that you need to hear from the Lord. So that's what I'm after. Uh, if, that, if that interests you, great. If not, um, feel free to surf Twitter. Let me know, what, let me know after the service how that went. Um, but let's get into it together. So I'm going to be focusing on primarily verses 29 through 30, this, this profound invitation of Jesus. And I want to start by saying that in the scriptures, the category of rest uh, begins all the way back in, G- in Genesis chapter 1, right? So this is a category that predates sin coming into the world. And, you know, every culture has things that it likes about Christian faith, right? Um, and then every culture has things that it doesn't like about Christian faith, and those things change depending on the culture you're in, right? So, for example, our culture is offended by the Christian sexual teaching, right? So, you know, when I was pastoring, I'd get emails about once every two months, and people like screening the church, tell me what you think about, you know, this topic or that, you know, LGBT or whatever, like weddings, all these things, and they wanted to know before they stepped foot in the door because they were screening us, right? So I got pretty good at answering those emails before ChatGPT. You know how easy it is to be a pastor now? I mean, come on. I mean, $20 a month. You don't even have to work hard. You're like, write an email that responds to this person and make them feel really good, but tell them what you actually think. It's like, I used to work really hard for that. Now, I mean, come on. Like, what, what does Rob even do all day? You know, this, is, this has got to be so easy now. So, you know, every culture has things it loves and everything it doesn't. Yeah, um, our culture, though, what I find in non-Christian world and I find in the Christian world, both, is that rest is elusive, right? I tell you, like, you know, in my professional work, um, you know, so I run a small company. We have four staff that are in-house, and then we have other kind of like part-time partners around the country. And, you know, I'm extremely busy in, in work. And I'll tell you, basically, I think without fail, every customer call I have, I start off and I ask the customer, how are you doing? And I think in the last like month and a half, 100% have said effectively, I'm overwhelmed. It's too busy here, you know? And so I think it's like fairly, it's fairly uh, widespread, you know? And it's interesting, right? Because um, if you ask yourself, how might I find rest? You know, the first answer that comes to my mind is very simple. I would say, well, I just have to stop working. That's all. But, you know, if you think that and you think, well, that would be, that's, you know, when I retire, I'll have rest and that'll, all, that'll be all it is. Well, you know, it's interesting. My brother, um, he runs a business also. And, and in his case, he actually bought his business from his boss, which is something that happens in small companies. And he bought it, you know, basically the, the business gives you a loan and then you, you buy it and you take over ownership and you pay that loan off over time. So my brother had a relationship with his former boss even through this, this period. And the guy had made a lot of money through various ventures. And he retires early, young, spends, I don't know, maybe two years living on his yacht, kind of doing nothing. And he said, I don't like my life. So he went and he started another company, right? Which is actually, again, fairly common. And I, I say that because, you know, what it really highlighted for me is that 
you know, rest is elusive, and it's elusive even if you can retire in your 30s, right? Which I think is probably hard for most of us to believe that that would be the case. But if you look at the data, if you look at people, if you talk to people who have actually done it, you find that they don't, they don't enter the promised land that you might think that would be the case. So rest is elusive, you know, and our culture uh, increasingly, you know, it's interesting if you follow the, uh, anything related to the economy, you know, there's an interesting word that is one of the most important words in hearing anything about the economy, right? You know what that word is? Productivity, right? Which means what are you producing? And, you know, I love, kind of a big fan of Elon uh, in, in some ways. I don't, I don't approve of everything. You know, but I like the fact that uh, he cares about humanity. Right, I appreciate, <laughs> appreciate that. I like the fact that he likes children. Um, a few different things I like about him. But, you know, one of the things that was really interesting in um, the, the whole drama about him taking over Twitter was he wanted to invest in Twitter at first, and so he did. And he wanted to get on the board, and then he realized he didn't like that. And so he starts publicly criticizing, you know, the leadership of Twitter and saying, like, you guys are doing a terrible job, even though he's this, their largest investor now. And then the one guy sends him a, a private message, the CEO sends him a private message and says, I want to tell you that your tweets are not helpful, <laughs> right? Like, what you're doing is not helpful to our company that you're now our largest investor in. So Elon, of course, posts that to Twitter, <laughs> posts the exchange, and it, I don't know if you, any of you know how he replied, but he replied with one simple question. He said, I'm curious, what did you accomplish this week? What did you produce? Right? And that was just an interesting, I think, an interesting way of kind of highlighting that our culture is, you know, is really focused on the question of not, are you living a balanced life, but are you producing Right? Are you, are you carrying your weight in value? And so what does the Bible have to say about all this? And how does it guide us in living the life that God intends? So what I want to do is take you on a brief history of work and rest through the scriptures. And then I want to use that to tee up this passage to try to unpack what it might mean for your life. So as I said, work and rest comes up all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, which many of you probably might know. God creates the world. He labors to create the world in six days, and on the seventh day, it says what? He rested from his labors, and it, that pattern is used uh, in the law to set up a pattern of work and rest, and it's actually highlighted throughout uh, the Mosaic law as being one of the most important commands. It actually makes it into the Ten Commandments, right, for Sabbath rest, and, you know, Israel is... Uh, exiled to Babylon, and, you know, if you read the history of that exile, and you look at the reasons that they're exiled, one of the reasons that actually is highlighted fairly prominently is they said, you didn't follow the pattern of rest for the land. So the land was supposed to get this year of, of rest every seven years, let the soil kind of recoup, and he said, therefore, because you didn't let the land rest for 70 years, basically, he said, I'm going, to, I'm going to provide that for the land by taking you out of the land, and then the land will get its rest, right? 70 years in Babylon for the 70 Sabbaths that you neglected. So it's an important issue to the Lord, but there's a major problem. You know where else it comes up in the early chapters of Genesis, right? It comes up 
in, in God's activity and it's presented as this beautiful and good thing that is extremely important for your souls and for your bodies, then it comes up a second time uh, in the curse, right? So if you remember the curse, Adam and Eve take the fruit that they're not supposed to eat, right? And Adam, of course, <laughs> blames it on his wife. She blames it on the serpent. We don't need to get into all that. Um, but God starts laying out the implications of their choices, right? Um, and so he says to Eve, you're going to have pain and childbirth, uh, which I understand is, is a true reality. Um, understand that that can be a little bit painful. But for Adam, what does he say? He says, by the sweat of your brow, you will work the fields of the earth, right? By the sweat of your brow. And that's interesting, right? Because, you know, you can read that and you can say, well, I think that he's just saying, you know, you have to work hard. You have to sweat in order to work, right? But that doesn't, you know, I had nothing, never really sat well with me. So found a, um, I found a really fantastic article that traced the Hebrew of that uh, throughout the Old Testament and in, in other extra-biblical writings. And the author very persuasively says, you know, the sweat that he's talking about is not the sweat of work, but it's the sweat of anxiety, where you ask the question, will the ground actually bring something forth? So it's not the sweat of saying like, yes, I'm digging a ditch, I'm helping Robbie move, and you know, we're getting our CrossFit in for the week, right? It's the sweat of staying up at night, heart pumping, blood pressure elevated, body feels all hot, and you are asking the question, is this actually going to work? Is the ground going to deliver what I need? And of course, in the context of the curse, that fits very well because God says, you know, work is going to become more difficult. There's going to be not just provision of fruits and vegetables, but there's going to be thorns to contend with. There's going to be years of famine. There's going to be all kinds of season where you will ask the question, is there going to be provision? So we live in a world where uh, that's filled with kind of two realities, right? The reality, number one, is that we haven't figured out how to live productive lives that include healthy balance, right? And that's, that's where our culture really is. And the more that our culture zeroes in on productivity, right, which it has, I think, especially for the last 10 years in my, my life at least, that, that word becomes increasingly more part of the conversation. And the more that technology comes into play, obviously, um, the more important that that is, you know, and now a lot of, a lot of you probably can work from home, right? That's, you know, one of the gifts of COVID and that has some, a lot of benefits, right? But it also means that you can be on call 24 seven, right? You could be sitting right here in church and get an email from your boss that interrupts your worship and causes you to like have some anxiety today. Oh, I have to face something tomorrow, Right? Um, maybe one of you already got an email like that. Who knows? So we have this situation where, you know, in our day and age especially, we don't, it is more difficult to experience uh, this balance. And at the same time, uh, we have not made a great deal of progress in the question of saying, are we able to live our lives without the sweat of anxiety? Will this, will the ground produce itself and produce uh, what we need? And then we come to our passage. And our passage, you know, I'd encourage you uh, in your Bible reading today to actually read the whole chapter. I didn't want to read it for uh, the sermon, 
but I'd like to encourage you to read the whole chapter because it is actually helpful to see the context that this invitation is given in. Uh, the, I'll just summarize it for you. The context is Jesus kind of comes to a point where he starts laying out condemnation for various cities, right? So if you look in the earlier part of chapter 11, he's like, woe to you, Bethsaida, because if the miracles were done, that were done in your land, were done in the land of Sodom, they would have repented, but you haven't. And then he lays out, woe to you, Horizon. And, and he goes into a lot of condemnation of the fact that he has been performing sign after sign after sign after sign, and the response has really been that of unbelief, right? It's been of unbelief. And therefore, what, you know, how do we think about that? How do we think about the fact that Jesus has worked so hard in our lives, and yet our lives are often characterized by unbelief, Right? especially, you know, he's there physically in the flesh, healing people, raising the dead, performing miracle after miracle, and there's just unbelief and unbelief and unbelief. And how do we explain that? And Jesus says, this is how we explain it. Verse 25, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and you have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. And he goes on to say that, you know, the reason there's so much unbelief, in, in spite of overwhelming evidence, right, overwhelming evidence. My 12-year-old the other day, we had, a, we had the most interesting conversations. I have a 35-minute drive with him to school now because we have him in school in town that's 35 minutes away. And, man, we have the most interesting conversations. He said, Dad, I've really been thinking of how is it that people can believe in a flat earth? He's like, I, you know, he's like, I'm just wondering, like, do people actually believe that the earth is flat? Because, and, and how could someone come to that point of view? And I said, you know, son, like, I have been around folks that kind of believe in conspiracy theories, but, but this is one that I have not figured out the answer to, right? Like, this one is, is, is above my pay grade. I really don't know how this works. And we were just talking about it, and he's like, and he's basically, you know, he's a fan, he's like into astronomy and all that stuff. And he said, you know, if you have a telescope, you can see that all the planets are round. He said, so why would they think that ours is the only one that's not spherical? Like, how does that work? And, and he's like, and then people paid all this money to prove that the earth was flat. And their experiment said the opposite, that it's actually not. And he said, well, he was trying to figure this out. Very, um, <laughs> very tough question. And it, and it caused me to ask the question, how could you believe something in, in the face of overwhelming evidence to the contrary, right? You know, that's a reality that we still face today. That was the situation that Jesus found himself in in this passage, right? Miracle after miracle after miracle that he's doing. And yet there is so much unbelief, so much unbelief, in fact, that... His, his enemies are able to successfully have him executed. As you know, the end of the story, that's how much unbelief there was. And what Jesus says is, he says, the explanation from that is that, you know, in this, this language of being wise and understanding, what I think he's effectively getting at is he's saying, pride has a blinding effect, right? Pride has a blinding effect that keeps you back from understanding the hidden things of God, 
right? He says, and, and he's like, that's because God does not respond well to pride, right? To, to folks who think they are wise and understanding. And, you know, if you read in James, it effectively says that. He says, God gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud, right? He's against pride, but he gives grace to the humble. And similar ideas is here, right? That God has hidden these things. He's, he's caused a blindness, a hardness, so that these folks who are seeing overwhelming evidence, right, and, and seem to be knowledgeable on all kinds of topics, cannot see what is so plainly in front of their face, right, that Jesus is, in fact, the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is good. And in the midst of that unbelief, what's, what's really striking is that he gives the invitation of verse 28 through 30, right, in the midst of all kinds of people saying, no, we don't believe that you are the Son of God. No, we don't believe that you're the Messiah. No, we don't believe, in, fact, in spite of the fact that you just provided a meal for 5,000 people, in spite of the fact that you've raised the dead, in spite of the fact that you've healed hundreds of sick people, we do not believe. And in the midst of that unbelief, he gives this most precious invitation in verse 28, and he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So what is he saying in that, and how does that help us actually access the rest that he offers? Well, the first thing that I want to point out is that the invitation, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, is given to those of us, right, who are inclined to be at work all the time. Right? So it's given to the laborers. Right? So there's two dysfunctions related to work and rest. There's the dysfunction of being what you might call a workaholic, where you work all the time, right? That's really the primary one addressed here. There's also the dysfunction of the sluggard who comes up in Proverbs. He's like, I don't want to work at all. I just want to be on my Xbox all day, right? Surf Twitter. Um, that person is not really addressed here in verse 28. Uh, but those of you who find yourselves who are working all the time, and who cannot, find, cannot seem to find rest in the context of working all the time, Jesus says to you, he says, come to me, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden. Right? And by the way, heavy laden, I think, is connected to this idea of anxious sweat. It's connected to the anxiety that accompanies this question, is my work enough? Is it going to succeed? Are the plates that I have spinning all up in the air going to stay, or is everything going to come crashing down? That's the, the heavy laden. That's the feeling of burden that he's addressing. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And of course, he goes on to say, you know, my burden is, is easy, my yoke is light, and I will give you rest for your souls. And, you know, what's interesting is that the promise of the gospel is sometimes expressed in this exact language, right? In the language of work and rest. It's expressed that way here. It also comes up in uh, the letter of the Hebrews where if you look in Hebrews chapters three and four, what the author is saying, he says, Israel never really found rest, right? That, that was actually the promise of Israel as they were coming into the promised land was, you know, you will have rest from your enemies. You can finally, in, in fact, today, you know, we see for Israel, still does not have the promise that they were given, that you will have peace on all your borders. You won't have to worry about being attacked. And even in our present day, you can see that uh, 
they have not yet entered into that rest. And the author of Hebrews says there remains a rest for the people of God. And as he lays out his telling of the gospel, this is central to the good news. And you know, it's interesting, right? Um, in our tradition, being uh, Presbyterians, uh, those of you, any of you guys members here? How many are members? Thank you. How many are thinking about becoming members? All right. I, I highly recommend it, especially here. Uh, it's a great place. So if you become members here, this is what's going to happen. You're going to meet with uh, members of the session, and you're going to have a class, and then you're going to come up on stage, and uh, someone's going to ask you, they're going to say, do you receive and rest in Christ alone as he is offered in the gospel? And you cannot join the church unless you affirm that statement. You cannot. Robbie will say, if you don't agree to rest in Christ, you're out of here. You're not, you're not entering, <laughs> right? He'll be nice about it. Um, but in our membership vows itself, it's put in there as the second question. It's like five questions. Question number two, do you receive and rest upon Christ alone? Right? In other words, you know, central to the gospel is the acknowledgement that I will rest in Christ alone. You know, and I point out to folks who are, you know, joining the church, I'd say, you know, this is one of the distinctives that makes us distinctively Protestant, right? If, if you come from a Catholic background, there's a lot of beautiful things about Catholic theology that I, I love, but one that I do not love is the fact that, you know, in Catholic theology, I, from my understanding, you cannot say, I rest in Christ alone. I, I can close my eyes at night and say, it is finished because of Christ, right? You cannot do that, but that is what is required uh, to come to him, right? And that's expressed, I think, as clearly in verse 28. Come to me, and I will give you rest. Come to me and release yourself into my care. So how do we do that, and what does it look like? Well, as I was trying to bring out, the context of this invitation, right, the context that he's giving us, this breathtaking invitation, is the context of widespread unbelief, right? Widespread, I do not acknowledge who you are. I do not acknowledge your power. I do not acknowledge your authority. I do not acknowledge that you're from God. I think you're just this interesting person that maybe has figured out ways to, like, put on a cool show, but you are not king of my life. You are not the provider of my needs. You are not the one who loves my soul. And therefore, I just watch the show and I go on my merry way. In the middle of that, he says this invitation. And I think, you know, Hebrews also clarifies, if you do look, do some additional reading in chapter three and four, that the only way to access what Jesus offers here, the only way is through faith and trust. What does that mean? Well, let me give you a couple ideas is what I think it means, right? See, the, the primary thing in verse 25 that holds a person back from God and from Christ is pride. And I was thinking about this, like, why would anyone, you know, I work with, like I said, every single one of my customers says to me, I'm overworked, every single one. Now, some of them, I have doubts that that's actually the case, right? I'm like, you have one thing to do. How could you be overworked? <laughs> I'm doing 50 things and you're doing one thing. How does that even work? I don't know. Some of them I have doubts that that's actually the case, but they certainly feel like it's the case. Um, but 
why would anyone who feels so overwhelmed not respond to an invitation like this, right? You know, and some of you may walk out of here and say like, oh, that was an interesting sermon and just be like completely unaffected by it. Why might that be the case? Well, as I've analyzed this, and I think in my own experience and from the passage, so you see, to come to Christ, you have to lay down your pride, right? You have to let go of saying, I have what it takes. I'm good enough on my own. You, in fact, to be a Christian, you have to say, vow number one in our membership process, right? Do you acknowledge that you're a sinner in God's sight? You have to say, I cannot do it. I cannot do it. And so that's actually step number one to entering Christ's rest. And I want you to say that in your heart. If, if you affirm this, I want you to say it in your heart right now. I cannot provide adequately for the needs that I have and that those who are depending on me have as well. I cannot do it on my own. You have to say that to, your, to yourself, right? The second thing is, I believe that Christ will. I believe that he will. And you know, like, um, one of the reasons that it, rest can be elusive is because when you, when you go to bed at night, and I don't know if you have this experience, I was, having, I was having it in the worship service this morning, right? I'll be honest with you. I was actually thinking about things I have to do tomorrow. Came to my mind, and I was like, Darren, like, you were such a sinner. Like, maybe you shouldn't even preach, right? <laughs> like, maybe, like, like, get up here and not even do it. But then, you know, thought it'd be a good illustration for you all, <laughs> right? And, and I was asking the question, why are you worrying about this? when you should be focusing on worship? And the answer, of course, is, well, I'm, I'm kind of a big sinner. That's what I do. And friends, in the same way, when you are tempted to stress out over, am I good enough? Am I providing enough? Am I keeping all the plates spinning? Right? The answer is, no, not really. But Christ is, and he will. And you know, uh, it's interesting uh, in the language of Genesis chapter 1, right? It says that God finished his work. He was done. He was done creating. It was all really good. And then he rests. And you know, one of the reasons rest can be elusive is because you never feel finished. You never, you like go to bed and you're like, oh man, I, I, I still have a thousand things to do tomorrow. I'm over, I, the, the list is very full. It's never going to end. But friends, in Christ... You can look at this language of verse 28 and you can say, I'm laboring and I'm heavy laden, but in Christ it is finished. In Christ, in Christ, I don't have to deliver it all. And that's why I included verse 29 and 30 because he says, take my yoke. You know, yoke is this uh, oxen are connected together. Be connected to me. And he says, you know, this is the, the Christian view. He says, you will work hard, right? My burden is light, there will be a burden. You will work hard, right? Like in Christ, you will, you will labor, you will sweat, you will be exhausted, and it will feel really good. And he said, but you won't have to do it with the sweat of anxiety dripping from your forehead because in Christ, as he says on the cross, it is finished. He has done what is necessary. And you know, as we come to this table, um, you know, I'm reminded of the process through which Jesus went to the cross, right? And as he's going through his darkest hour, he goes into the garden of Gethsemane and he, he pleads with his father. He says, Father, I don't want to do what's in front of me. 
I don't want to drink the cup that I'm about to drink. And the passage in, in the Gospel of Luke, it describes it. It says that there was sweat that was like blood coming down from his forehead. What was happening in that instance? Answer, Jesus Christ was experiencing the curse of Genesis chapter 3 for you. He was experiencing the curse of anxious sweat as he was saying, it might not be okay. And in fact, God actually forsakes Christ on the cross, which he will say, why have you forsaken? He, ex- he experiences the fullness of aloneness. Why? So that you can never have to experience that. That in your darkest hour, you can say, no matter what, he is with me, he is providing, he is leading me. I do not have to bear the sweat of anxiety. I can work really hard and then I can trust in Christ that it is finished. So we're going to celebrate that at this table. And I hope that you can celebrate that a little bit today by sleeping really well tonight. I do. That's application, right? In Christ, I'm not sufficient, but he is. And therefore, we're going to rest really well tonight. And this is a table of the foretaste of the feast that he is providing uh, that will be yours on the last day. So let me pray for us now. Father God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that you uh, are at work in our lives. Thank you that it is not all up to us. Thank you that Jesus is so good with us, so kind, so patient. Lord, I pray for myself and for uh, this congregation that you would give us grace to come to you like little children, uh, to lay down our pride, to not be blinded by unbelief, but to drink deeply of these things. Thank you for our time together, we pray in Jesus' name.